you're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, the quirky little podcast from Maine. And now, your host, Down East Mike. Dee deedle dee dee Good morning, everybody. This is Down East Mike. You found the Down East Mike Podcast coming to you live from deep Down East Maine, where every day is full of the salty, briny sea, fog, rain, snow. We've got the full mix, actually, here in Down East Maine. I am Down East Mike. I am an 8-bit guy living in a 64-bit world. And I just kind of motor along at my own pace, observing things around me. You may have seen me out on 295 or I-95. I'm the one driving that little Prius at about 47 miles an hour when they have the 45-mile-per-hour speed limit flag up because I observe the rules of the road. I am an illegally abiding citizen of the state of Maine. Uh, This is actually, uh, we had to think about it for a minute. Technically, it's season two of Down East Mike podcast. But the thing of it is, it's in in Downey's Mike's mind, it's still season one because all things have a season. And besides, we like to keep adding to that number of podcasts that we've endured. And right now we are up to episode number 72. This is news and commentary for December 6, 2023. Downey's Mike episode 72. And let's see, uh, our motto, we better give our disclaimer here. Some of this is whimsy, some of it's true, and the interpretation of it all is entirely up to you. Friday, January 6, 2023. In today's episode, we have a warm spell facilitating oil delivery. That's from 1971 on this day. The town of Glenburn, Maine burns it down, 1971. There was a flu outbreak in Florida on this day in 1971. The Russian Russians wanted to build a nuke garage in Cuba for their subs on this day in 1971. And we also visit with Maine's Mammal of the Moment. So we have a lot to look forward to in this podcast. At least you do. I don't know about me. Let's talk about international headlines, the world headlines. If you're just getting up and you haven't had coffee yet and you want to know what's going on, you don't have to turn on the TV. Let me tell you, facing pressure over border crossings, Biden steps up the migrant expulsions. Uh, 13 crucial moments, a timeline of how the University of Idaho murders unfolded. The arrest of El Chapo's son, Ovidio Guzman, throws Mexico into chaos ahead of Biden visit. Some, some imagery there of Mexico being in chaos. Ten reportedly injured in a shooting at Miami restaurant during a French Montana video shoot. I don't know, is that a fashion thing? Uh, Ukraine news Putin tries to find some oxygen with ceasefire call as U.S. sends 50 Bradley vehicles. What could go wrong? Hawaii's Kilauea volcano is erupting again. CNN's reporting that, so at least they've got their eyes on the prize here. All right. Oh, and Kevin McCarthy still didn't get voted in as Speaker of the House. That's the international headlines. Not much has changed there. 
Uh, let's look at the main headlines. Uh, Penobscot County Jail reports death of inmate. Um, former Portland City Manager fired from the same position in Florida. These are the main headlines. Penobscot County has its first independent probate judge. That's so boring. Chelly Pingree calls GOP's failure to elect a speaker historic embarrassment. A fatal crash in Turner. And Northern Light Health is to outsource 1,400 workers to a Minnesota-based company. I don't know why you couldn't find 1,400 workers in Maine. Well, but that's the uh, the headlines. Let's go to our podcast where things are much, much happier. Let's get right to the podcast. How about our birthdays, actually? Happy birthday today to Clarence of Ellsworth. He turned 68. He was a bank teller for many years. He made friends in and out of finance. And in his spare time, he carves wood ducks and volunteers at the park. Happy birthday, Clarence, 68. Happy birthday to Sven of Surrey, Maine. Uh, Sven is now 90. I don't know if you know him. He's a veteran of a number of wars, and he maintains a collection of firearms and military memorabilia, which he hopes to donate to a museum in Connecticut soon. Happy birthday, Sven. On this day, January 6, 1971, A shoe union was looking towards a national boycott of shoes manufactured at three shoe factories in central Maine. The pickets, they were marching in front of the shoe stores and at downtown shopping or shopping centers and downtown. And the wielding placards that pleaded with the public not to buy shoes manufactured by Penobscot Shoe Company. Uh... In the article here, not far away at each location, University of Maine students, those rebel rousers, presumably members of the Labor Support Committee, passed out leaflets about the shoe workers' strike. Attached was a printed handbill which called attention to the large salaries paid executives at the struck plants. And we get into the salaries here. Uh... There are three plants, is Old Town Shoe, Penobscot Shoe of Old Town, and Northeast Shoe of Pittsfield. Hard to believe it had all that shoe manufacturing going on at that time. Seven executives were in the 31,000 to 46,000 bracket for the year end in 1965. Hard to believe you'd pair the word executive pay with 31,000 a year, but at the time, it was a lot of money. Uh, eight executives received... During the same period, aggregate remunerations, wow, including bonuses ranging from 31000 to 57000 Boy, that'd buy you a nice boat back in 65, huh? The average hourly wage paid a shoe worker in 1970 was $2.50. The low was $1.90, while the high was $3.00. You come home, hey, mother, I'm making three bucks an hour now. I got my raise. The figures worked out to $100 a week average wage with a marginal 76, but they noted that a real sharp worker could make up to 200 bucks a week. God, that, that Sam down there, he's wicked sharp. He's making $200 a week in the shoe factory. And in all candor, I must tell you that the average runs from 221 to a high of 268. 
All right, that's the news about the uh, shoe protest. Uh, oil for the homes of Maine. It was anchored in the Penobscot River at Brewer. A pair of tankers have their valuable cargo of oil unloaded Tuesday to meet the sizable demand for fuel in the area after the December cold spell. Now, this year we haven't had a cold spell. A shortage of tankers does little to help the situation. However, oil companies say that if this warm spell continues, the tankers may be able to bring depleted amounts of fuel back to normal. The Northeast Goki and the Ethel have been up the river three times since Christmas, picking up oil in Portland and unloading in Brewer. The Goki carries a maximum of 750,000 gallons each trip, and the Ethel has room in her hull to carry 500,000 gallons of oil. Needed to break through the ice along the Penobscot, allowing free and easy passage for the tankers, was an icebreaker from the Coast Guard. That's hard to believe that that iced over in January of 1971, because there's certainly no ice on the river now. Uh, we had a story out of Glenburn on this day. It's on New Year's Eve, officials of the town set the home of a 71-year-old widow on fire. It's a sad story, actually. We're not making fun of it. We're just noting on it. She was the only one sorry uh, to see the small dwelling go. But after it had been declared a public health menace by town selectmen, she did admit to relatives it was the easy and the only thing to do. For three years, she surrounded herself in refuge, cat clutch, I don't know what a cat clutch is, old clothing, dirt, excrement, unused food, and broken furniture, which in their various stages of decay reached the height of the windowsills. So I think today we call them a hoarder. For three years, she lived without electricity, sewage system, running water, heat, and sanitary facilities. So you can get by with less in Maine. For three years, the weather came into the thin-walled shelter through broken windows covered only by nailed-up blankets. And for four years prior to her relocation in Glenburn, she had chosen to live in the same manner in another town. The widow, who lived as a recluse under these conditions, repeatedly had refused the invitations by her relatives to live with them. She now speaks to relatives and officials from the Bangor State Hospital, her immediate refuge. She is warm, clean, fed, and surrounded by people. It sounds like she's a squirrel or something. Town manager Harold Walton told the newspaper that the signatures of one relative and one physician, which was the town public health officer, authorized the widow's admittance. But before she was removed from the modest home on December 29th, the health officer administered a sedative which in the opinions of town officials and relatives would calm her as she left what she called her home for the last time. So that's nice. They went in and gave her a good jab before they dragged her out of there. Reportedly, a hospital official said that one more night under those conditions existing in the house and she would have approached death. The widow was admitted to the hospital with frostbitten feet. This just gets sadder. Uh, surprisingly, she suffered from no other disease after living in her environment for a total of seven years. Her dwelling remained virtually unchanged between the time she moved in and the day she was given sedatives 
and carried out by members of the town volunteer ambulance squad. I wonder if they prep for that like a SWAT team hit. Okay, here's what we're going to do, Clarence. You're going to give her the sedatives. You know, noted that initially they did say sedative, and then later on the story here is now sedatives. Without infringing upon this woman's personal rights, it should be brought out that very similar cases exist in every part of Maine. Something must be done. So the town managers didn't want to infringe on a personal right, but they did want to jab her with the sedatives. He said his selectmen automatically had the power to declare the woman's house a health hazard after receiving complaints and following an inspection by the county sheriff's department and town health officer. Seems like with all this manpower, they could have just fixed their windows. However, the town manager attested no warning was ever issued the owner. One relative, who describes himself as geographically close to the woman, said the raising of her house was an appropriate procedure. Walton, uh, the town manager, explained, however, it was evident after so many overtures made, made by the family's, woman's family that she wanted to be left alone. Oh, let's see. It goes on about the title 22, chapter 263, section 1561. It says, When any source of filth or cause of sickness is found on private property, the owner or occupant thereof shall within 24 hours after notice from the local health officer at his own expense remove or discontinue it. And it goes on and on. The catch in the phrase is cause of sickness. By an 1895 precedent case in Rockland, Maine, the owner or occupant cannot be required to remove the public nuisance since cause of sickness is the occasion. And they go on and on about the legalities of it all. Grocery deliveries and neighbor's table leftovers were passed through a window. She had not left the house for two years. The surrounding resident said she purchased innumerable cases of milk, cat food, and dog food on a regular basis. She had 21 cats, no kids. She never lacked food and was never a welfare case. Anyway, sad story, but that's how they dealt with things at the time. A Soviet sub-base was feared. Two of Florida Democratic congressmen say they still believe the Soviet Union is attempting to develop a service facility for nuke subs in the Caribbean, despite President Nixon's expression of confidence that the Kremlin does not want a second Cuban crisis. Representative Paul Rogers claims to have seen serial photographs of the Soviet military activity in Cuba, and he said Tuesday there's no doubt in his mind that the Kremlin is attempting to develop strategic nuke capability in the Caribbean. Not much has changed. Although, here's an ad from Chevy, 1971. You've changed. We've changed. Change, that's what it's all about this year. And that's what we mean by putting you first. These are uneasy times. There are major concerns and there's pollution. Actually, that should read, there are major concerns about pollution and safety and your hard-earned dollar. 1971 sounds like today. For the past 10 years, Chevy Research people have questioned thousands of people on every subject about rising taxes to the size of the glove box in their cars. We've found that price and maintenance costs, trade-in value, and quality have become tremendously important. Your car has to work, blah, blah, they're going on. 
then he notes some of the things. Among the many that you'll find for the change in the 1971 Chevrolets is new emission controls to help bring back clean air. In every new model, we've made further substantial reductions in both the discharge of hydrocarbons and carbon monoxide. All 1971 Chevy engines run efficiently on the new no-lead or low-lead gasolines, too, which not only decreases air pollution, but increases the life of your spark plugs, exhaust systems, and other engine components. And then they talk about the size. The idea in the 1971 Caprice was to give you the looks and comfort of a six or $7,000 car without asking you to pay anywhere near that much. And above all, to build in as many as much dependability and security as possible. And they go on, oh, and they talk about the Vega. Our little Vega, everything ticks. It's got a bigger engine than most little cars, 140 cubic inches. Yet the gas mileage is right in the same neighborhood with the best of them. Kind of vague there, huh? It has front disc brakes, a power ventilation system. In other words, you don't have to open that little side vents down by your knees. Steel guard beams in the doors and an exceptionally stable ride. I think I saw Rockford Files guy driving one of those once. Uh, oh, and they talk about the movies. Don Adams, Barbara Eden, Chevy presents Changing Scene 3 with Engelbert Humpeldink and a host of other stars, January 7th. Wow, I've got to look up that one, too. They had the Monte Carlo, the Camaro. A vanishing tailgate It's a big change in our big wagon to make life easier. The window goes up into the roof. The glide-away tailgate disappears under the floor. Out of sight, out of your way. Has a picture of the Chevelle there, too. And also kind of a note that on this day, uh, the modern-day news here, Dodge has announced the date that its last V8-powered muscle car will be revealed. The brand is discontinuing the current Charger and Challenger at the end of 2023 and will be replacing them with the all-electric Charger, the Daytona SRT. So the Hemi and Hellcat V8s will be going away. Awful powerful engines. Also on this day, 1971, out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, they had a flu outbreak, 13,000 cases, 18 deaths in one week, the health officials declared an epidemic in Fort Lauderdale, rapidly filling up, uh, which was rapidly filling up with vacationing elderly who are the most susceptible to the disease. Most of the victims were way up in years where it doesn't take much to tip the balance, said the Broward County Health Director. The most preventive, me preventative measure is to get vaccinated. If you haven't already, Get vaccinated or get a booster shot if you need one. We still preach the use of the flu vaccine as a preventive measure. It is effective and readily available for any general practitioner. This day, 1971. From Life Magazine, squeezing into the 70s, an article uh, related to uh, the changing times as the 1969, the 1960s era had rolled into 1970, and they posed a question can 200 million Americans tolerate each other well enough to survive like this? Now, the article goes on. Nothing recalls a depression more vividly than scenes of men reduced 
to the anguish and humiliation of having to wait in line for something to eat. Americans today face a new frustration. For all their prosperity, they are unable to buy their way out of the crowd. The despair of yesterday's soup line has been replaced by today's ordeal of the steak line. Wealth is already judged by how much privacy it can buy, Zuckerberg. For many people, the appeal of long-distance travel no longer lies in reaching exotic places so much as in getting away from undesirable ones. Even former presidents and cabinet ministers admit that of all the privileges of high office, it is their officially protected privacy that they miss most of all. The next decade will begin the fatal math, the doubling and tripling of national and world populations to levels that present-day science predicts will be impossible to support without widespread starvation, violence, and constant bristling annoyance with our fellow space usurpers. That sounds like today. They were predicting this would be just uh, the coming decade. It took the entire history of the world until the mid-19th century to amass a population of one billion people, another 80 years to reach a second, 30 years to the third. At the present growth rates, mankind will number six billion people by the year 2000. This is Life Magazine, 1971. Americans are only 6% of the world's population, but they devour 35% of its annual production of raw materials. A biologist says each American baby represents 50 times as great a threat to the planet as each Indian baby. I don't think of babies as being threatening. Instead of today's tax exemptions, there may one day be special taxes levied on third and fourth children of large families with luxury taxes applied to diapers and baby bottles. In the meantime, Americans are learning what it means to be part of that ugly social adjective, mass, In the 1970s, we may not need a president who can bring us together so much as one who can pull us apart. Then we jump to an ad of a guy. He's he's on the deck of a schooner. He's holding a prominent prominent in his right hand is a can of Schlitz malt liquor. He's he's holding that towards the camera. And the, the tagline is, you only go around once in life, so grab for all the gusto you can even in the beer you drink. Why settle for less? When you're out of Schlitz, you're out of beer. He's certainly braced against the elements there with that Schlitz in his hand. Here's another ad. Win the elephant of your dreams. Imagine a live, robo-clean elephant delivered to your door, or $4,000, or maybe one of our second prizes. Just by completing the entry blank, you'll pick up and deposit at any participating robo car wash. Kids can win too. There's no age limit, nothing to buy. The robo win an elephant contest is open to anyone in the U.S. and Canada except where prohibited by law. And then they talk about entry blanks and that sort of thing. And if you don't need an elephant, you don't want to win the elephant, you can take cash. You have 4000 cash for a scholarship fund. It's got a picture of the robo automatic car wash. Don't those things rip your fenders off? Four second prizes of a 1970 Javelin, one of the hottest cars of the current model year. Wow, 4000 or win one of those Javelins, huh? Then they say down at the bottom, 
We washed an elephant at Robo in just two minutes. He was spotlessly clean. If Robo can do that for an elephant, think what it can do for your car. Uh, I don't think that ad would go so well today. Uh, here's another ad we found. The fat time of day. If you're really hungry and ready to eat two of everything, here's how sugar can help. And it's got a lady there. She looks like uh, Jackie Onassis. And she's got her fork uh, up to her mouth. And she says, if sugar can fill that hollow feeling, I'm all for it. And then they go on to note the fat time of day is when you're over hungry and want to overeat. That's when your app stat is turned up high. To turn your app stat back to low, take a little sugar in a soft drink or a candy bar shortly before mealtime. Sugar helps turn energy faster than any other food. It keeps your appetite down, your energy up, and helps you slip safely past the fat time of day. Sugar, only 18 calories per teaspoon, and it's all energy. And that's from the Sugar Information Board. You can get recipes from them as well. Uh, what else do we have? A little ad here on electricity. So fresh, so clean, so right for your family. It's a young mother holding her child up, and it's got kind of a dreamy, a foggy background. Everything's white, and they're all dressed in white with big smiles on their faces. The electricity that lights your home is the cleanest form of energy known. It's absolutely flameless, absolutely without combustion. So it follows that flameless electric heat is the cleanest, purest home comfort you can buy. It delivers a special, carefree comfort, odorless and quiet. Just comes through a line. If you're building, buying, or modernizing, get all the unique benefits of flameless electric heat for your family. Combine it with electric air conditioning, and you can get pure comfort all year long, whether you live in a house, apartment, or mobile home. Electric heat. Live carefree. Live better electrically. Well, let's get into our feature story here from the 1970 Life magazine on this day. And this notes, the, this is a, about a survey they did. It was a life poll by Harrison Associates. And they talked to a cross-section of 4,000 Americans on matters ranging from race to foreign policy to lifestyles. And the results provide a convincing picture of American attitudes at the close of the 60s. They also suggest how quickly the majority view may shift and in what direction. Given a list of 26 items to rate in terms of relative importance to them, Americans paint an almost Jeffersonian picture of their aspirations. Green grass and trees, friendly neighbors, churches, schools, and good stores nearby. Their personal goals reflect a market shift away from the old ethic of continued hard work and success, stressing instead a desire for peace and middle-class satisfactions. On race, they display a basic tolerance toward many phases of integration which far surpass, surpasses the present reality, although whites continue to resist the idea of intermarriage or any overt favoritism towards blacks in jobs and housing legislation. Sharp divergence remains between young and old, the educated and uneducated, but compared to earlier polls on the same topic, there seems to be a growing consensus about change. 
Uh, they talk about uh, Americans seem quite content with their work and lives. The average work week noted was 39.5 hours. Only managers and executives complain of working too hard, while 64%, even of those with an 8th grade education, find their work important and significant. That's what that work is. Only 30%, mostly on the lower end of the economic scale, feel that automation is more harmful than helpful. Given a choice between making more money and getting more time off, only 45% opt for money. And when asked to choose between 10% more income in an interesting job or 50% more income in a boring job, 75% of all people chose the interesting job. In short, Americans do not appear to be as compulsively dissatisfied and materialistic as they are always accused of being. Um, really interesting numbers. 58% agree that a great many people engage in premarital sex. A solid 75%, including 60% of all teenagers and people in their 20s, oppose this trend. Marijuana is even more heavily condemned. 73% rated as a very serious problem, and 78% feel it should be legally banned. But this attitude may not last. Asked if they see the day when marijuana is used as much as alcohol, 38% and more than 50% of all the young people in the survey did say yes. Distrust of the new permissiveness Extends to the revolution in the arts and culture. 44% think that new styles in hair and dress are a sure sign of moral decay in America. 53% can't understand a lot of what is going on in books, music, and movies. And 78% perceive that traditional values are being torn down and that's bad. And then they note here, if so many people still cling to old-fashioned virtues, why do these standards appear to be collapsing? One factor, certainly, is that people hear about strife and trouble wherever it occurs and generalize about what they see in the news, even though they may have no direct experience of it. Thus, 38% of all Americans say this country is a worse place to live in than it was 10 years ago, although only 14% see a decline in their own neighborhoods. Similarly, Crime is cited as the most urgent domestic problem by 50% of the people in a Life Harris survey. And let's see what else we can find in this survey. Uh, what, they asked them, what do you find most important? Uh, to be at peace with yourself and have honest relationships with others. Raising a family in a way that will be admired by your friends and neighbors. Being able to do what you feel like doing when you want to do it. Do what you want to do. Go where you want to go. That was that era, huh? A heaven of full and relaxing time in your leisure, non-working life. What does that mean? Fixing up your house the way you want it, 54% of the respondents. Hard work and saving money, 47%. Rank that as their most important. Getting to the top in your work, 38% of the respondents. Enjoying the best in cultural experiences was 32%, and traveling to different parts of the country and the world, 25% ranked that as the, most high, as the highest. The things Americans want most around them, green grass and trees around me, 95% of the respondents. And neighbors with whom I feel comfortable, 92%. 
Remarkably, a church of my faith nearby, 86% of the respondents in the Life Harris Survey, 1970. A first-rate shopping area nearby, 84%. A kitchen with all the modern conveniences, 84%. And good schools nearby, 81% of the respondents. Survey from 1970 Life Magazine. A little story here about fashion. Fashion as we know it is dead. The Austrian-born American designer Rudi Geinrich proclaimed in 1971, in the new environment of the future, people will accept their bodies. Clothes will be utilitarian, organic, and minimal. It will free us to think of more important things. I note here that Geinrich may have been better at provocation than prophecy, but he forever remains fashion's envelope and button-pushing philosopher, he want, he's the guy who once staged a show at Watts Towers, was photographed with the likes of Ed Ruscha, Judy Chicago, and Frank Geary on the steps of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and gave the world much to ponder in 64 when he introduced the Monokini, a topless bathing suit that Pope Paul VI uh, banned Catholics from wearing. With blocky geometric patterns playing off the organic flowers fabrics, Geinrich, who died in 1985, um, brought a bit of op art to fashion design along with social conscience. He's considered a godfather of the LGBT rights movement, and his work was not afraid to tangle with big issues, body consciousness, gender, identity, and sexual politics. And he invented the thong. I thought that was significant. Um... A little more in his, in his clothing thing here. Clothing will not be identified as either male or female. This is in 1970. Geinrich said, Women will wear pants. Men will wear skirts interchangeably. And since there won't be any squeamishness about nudity, see-through clothes will only be see-through for reasons of comfort. Weather permitting, both sexes will go about bare-chested, although women will wear simple protective pasties. Of course they will. Jewelry will exist only as a utility, that is, to hold something up or together like a belt or for information, like a combination wristwatch, weather indicator, compass, and radio. The aesthetics of fashion are going to involve the body itself. We will train the body to grow beautifully rather than to cover it to produce beauty. In an era when the body will become the convention of fashion, the old will develop a uniform of their own. If a body can no longer be accentuated, it should be abstracted. The young won't wear prints, but the elderly will because bold prints detract. The elderly will have a cult of their own, and the embarrassment of old age will fade away. So I vow not to be embarrassed today. Well, we've gone on quite a bit about the 70s in this podcast, and let's move on to Maine's Mammal of the Moment. And that actually is extinct, the American Mastodon. And as we get looking into this, there's a distinction between the Mastodon and the woolly mammoth. And they have a size uh, comparison here. So the Mastodon, the mammoth Americanum, and he's like on the smallest side of the scale. And then we have Mammothus primogenius, which is the woolly mammoth. He's the next biggest. And actually, today's African savanna elephant is bigger than the other two. 
But that woolly mammoth, he's got his fur hanging down. He's got the big toes, the mastodon. Uh, any one of us, several extinct elephantine mammal first appeared about 2.6 million years ago. Funny how they can't pinpoint that, huh? Continued in various forms through the Pleistocene epoch. In North America, mastodons probably persisted into the post-Pleistocene time and were thus contemporaneous with Paleo-Indian groups. In other words, the mastodons live with the Indians here in Maine. Mastodons had a worldwide distribution. Their remains are quite common and often very well preserved. I like it when they find them with flowers in their mouths, like they're flash frozen. A characteristic feature of the mastodons, which appear to have fed upon leaves, is the distinctive nature of the grinding teeth, which in many respects are relatively primitive. They are low-crowned, large, and strongly rooted, with as many as four prominent ridges separated by deep troughs. The teeth are smaller and less complex, however, than those in the true elephants. The prominent upper tusks were long and grew parallel to each other with an upward curvature. Short, lower tusks were present in males, but absent in females. Mastodons are shorter than modern elephants, but were heavily built. The skull was lower and flatter, of generally simpler construction than that of modern elephants, but similar in appearance. They have smaller ears, not as prominent as those of elephants. The body was relatively long, and the legs were short, massive, and pillar-like. Mastodons were covered with long, reddish-brown hair. It is likely that mortality caused by rapid changes in climate combined with human hunting pressure contributed to their extinction. DNA studies of the North American mastodon support the hypothesis that the mastodon's genetic diversity declined as conditions warmed, resulting in a retreat of the continental ice sheets and the animal's geographic range. What a great story about the mastodon. We have a little more on that in this news story here, a descriptive story. Snow was falling on a vast, grassy plain broken here and there by clumps of willow trees. Across this desolate landscape, an elephant-like mastodon runs clumsily, pursued by a band of hide-clad Indians moving stealthily over this land that was Maine 12,000 years ago. What was it like here in those days, just after the close of the last ice age? Was the climate similar to what it is today, or colder? Did Indians of the time kill giant mastodons by confronting them with spears in the grassy plains, or did they stampede the creatures into swamps for their slaughter? These are the sorts of questions Maine archaeologists have been trying to resolve since the days of the horse-drawn wagon, and some answers have been forthcoming uh, from old and new archaeological digs throughout the state. We now know, for example, that Indians living here more than 3,000 years ago made fishing line weights and stone knives so skillfully that their creations are objects of art. And they go on a bit. But the, by 7,000 BC, the giant mastodon had disappeared from what is now Maine. Moose, deer, and smaller animals filled the void in that ecology. Well, I think I'm going to go through my day a little bit sad that the mastodon is no longer part of the main landscape because I dearly love to see one out there 
frolicking along, not being chased by anything, because that's just mean. I think they're kind of cute. They're short, pillow-like legs covered with reddish fur. How about a Bigfoot riding a Mastodon? That'd be a sight to see. All right, so let's uh, let's wrap it up with the weather forecast for today, January 6, 2023. For today, snow here in Maine, uh, mostly after 1 p.m., patchy fog before 7 a.m., North wind around 5 miles per hour, becoming calm in the afternoon. Chance of precips around 80%. Uh, tonight's going to be um, cloudy with a low around 23. For Saturday, mostly cloudy with a high near 38. A calm wind. And Sunday will be sunny with a high near 31. As we look out ahead at the coming week, temperature's going to moderate somewhat. Um, be around the 30s during the day for a high. And that is January in Maine. It's actually on the warm side. Until next time, this is Down East Mike. I'm wishing you and your loved ones a day that is full of grace, love, and kindness. Until next time, we'll see you. Someone keep my car door. I'm not so sure I want to live in Maine anymore. I'm driving to Vermont, where the hills are green and the people there are seldom mean, except when they're texting. Gonna learn to drive my motorcycle in the snow. Gonna climb those green mountains Till there's nowhere left to go Gonna paddle my canoe down the Winooski River I'm driving to Vermont I'm driving to Vermont Brattleboro, here we go, Marlboro too A Wilmington and Dover, Jamaica, look at you I'm driving in Vermont in Vermont I'm going to Peru and Dorset too gonna jump into Lake Champlain wash away the pain gonna learn to drive my motorcycle in the rain gonna climb those green mountains I'll paddle my canoe down the Winooski River I'm driving to Vermont I'm driving to Vermont Searsburg and Grafton Athens too I'm driving in Vermont and Pulteney, Bennington and Rupert. I'm driving in Vermont. A maple leaf just flew over my head. I learned to ride my motorcycle in the snow. Gonna climb those green mountains Till there's nowhere left to go Gonna paddle my canoe down the 
when this river I'm driving 